his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling and said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for all forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending a promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so all God's people say back to him. It's like grass and all his glory, like the flowers of the field, the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Go ahead and grab a seat. The word of the Lord stands forever. And so if you have been here for all of 2023, you know that we have been going through the gospel of Luke. And here we are at the final chapter, the final narrative of this great book, the book of Luke. Uh, I think we had 15 weeks in the spring and another 15 to 16 in the fall. But today we wrap it up. Uh, as you see behind me, this is the graphic of the Realia series. And the Realia is just a simple object that Jesus has used over and over as an object lesson to understand what the kingdom of God is like. And so what we've done is we've cherry-picked all along the way all of those narratives and all of those stories and all of those parables that had to do with food and drink. Because over and over and over Jesus used the very normalcy and the ordinary of life, simple food and simple drink to show us the kingdom of God. And so here we have in chapter 24, we have two more meals. Now, I don't think we're going to be able to carry, get through all of them. That's okay. But I wanted to bring our attention that, that Luke strategically places two more meals at the end of his book. It's been an awesome journey. I hope that your hearts have been melted as you've understood Jesus more. And hopefully as you continue to read through the gospels, you'll understand that his kingdom come here on earth. And oftentimes what we can see and feel and smell and taste will tell us about the kingdom. Amen. And so here we are, chapter 24, and Jesus is post-resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. I know we were about to go into Advent, but we're going to just go talk about Easter for a little bit. But this is Easter Sunday. And what does he do? He shows up and he shows up physically to you and me to teach us something. Before we jump into the text, I wanted to ask a question for you to think about something that uh, you may not think about a ton, and that is heaven. What is heaven like? What is around heaven? What is around you? What do you see? You know, what do you behold? 
What is heaven like to you? Well, it's my assumption that this paragraph and this narrative actually teaches us about our eternal dwelling. And that's because Jesus has defeated sin and defeated death. And now in his resurrected state, he's going to teach you and me what we are going to do for all eternity. Now, I don't know what kind of pictures are in your mind, but a lot of literature and a lot of uh, art has shaded our views of what the eternal uh, looks like or what the heaven looks look like. So for some of you in art and in literature, we are really fat or chubby cherubs, right? And we're on clouds and maybe playing harps or doing something, right? And so this is the picture that you may see over and over and over is that we just become something delightful and frumpy and we have a harp that we've never even seen before and this is what you will do for all eternity. So that's one part of art or literature. The other part of society is that when we die, we will then face and look into a great bright light, right? And so when you die, you just kind of walk toward the light and this, this, this blinding light that hits you in your pupils and you can't see anything but the light. So heaven for you is a little bit like driving on the interstate with somebody with their high beams on, right? It's just kind of, uh, just kind of in your face all the time and this is what you will do. For others, heaven is a little bit like a worship service in which you will be standing amongst lots of people and singing the chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then you will sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And you will be repeating these same words over and over and over for a millennia and then for another millennia. Well, obviously, all three of these depictions are not exactly right. We won't be cherubs. We won't be staring at only a light. And we only won't be worshiping. We will be doing something different. But what will we be doing? There are some clues here in our last narrative in Luke 24 that actually will tell us what we will be doing. Because Jesus is resurrected. Sure, he's not glorified yet, but he's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he's given us a picture of what heaven is like. So if you've ever asked the question, I wonder what heaven's like, turn to this last narrative and you can get a little bit of a picture. All of those other pictures, they threaten a picture of God when in fact he's given it in black and white for us. He wants us to understand that our future reality looks a lot like Luke 24. So first and foremost, let's look at Luke 24. What has happened? Obviously, Good Friday has passed. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. Death, hell has been defeated. He then is buried into a tomb. A huge stone rolled over the opening and there he lay. And then on Sunday, this day, Easter Sunday, he comes out of the grave. We've heard the story. But what is it going to teach us about this topic? Is that Jesus actually spends his first day being raised from the dead with people. He could have done anything. He's defeated hell, 
and the grave. He could have done anything. It sounds simple, but there are three narratives over and over and over where our king, the one who has defeated everything, engages real people and in relationships. And so what Jesus is trying to tell us with these three narratives, when he engages the women at the tomb, as he's walking along the road to Emmaus, and now as he is here in this room with the disciples, with the apostles, he is built for relationships. And so whatever picture you have of eternity, whatever picture you have of heaven, just know at the, at the center of Jesus's heart on this day, is the center of his heart for all of eternity that he has come to make for himself a people, a family, relationships together. He approaches the women. He walks on the road to Emmaus and now he's in a simple living room together. And that's why the apostle Paul tells us that what Jesus has done is actually started a new family a new people group, a people group that is going to grow over and over and over again. Praise be to God. This is what he does. This last chapter tells us that he loves relationships. The second thing he does is that Jesus is real. I know that seems funny to say, but Jesus is Jesus. And when he approaches, he comes with flesh and bone. He does things like he talks and he tells you to to reach out and touch him. He then shares a meal with others. And so this is Jesus being Jesus. There's two meals in in, uh, Luke 24, one of bread and one of fish, but both are meals. And so the second thing that he wants to teach us is that the tactile, the tactile is here in the kingdom come, We're not just separated spirits. We're not just some kind of detached conscience. That the tactical, the reality, the tangible really does matter. And so as he goes and he walks on the road to Emmaus and he's talking and he's opened things up, he stops, he breaks bread, and that's when their eyes were opened. This was Jesus. Now Jesus does something interesting in our narrative. Jesus appears and kind of kind of dips in and dips out, dips in and dips out. The crux of our story here is with these 11. Remember, Judas has betrayed him. He's walked away. And Jesus is actually appearing in real time, in real space with the apostles. The scriptures tell us that they're filled with either fear or disbelief or frustration or something. Anyway, there's, there's some angst in their heart. They've heard the stories They've heard the women come back and say, we've seen him, but they haven't seen him. And so what does Jesus do? He appears, flesh and bone, right in the middle of them. This is what he does. He wants to prove himself to them physically. Because he wants their hearts to be aflamed that what they have heard is true. We're 2,000 years removed, and none of us have seen Jesus, and none of us can prove it. But there is historic facts that there were some, some 500, who was able to see 
and truly believe and tell us that it was true. I always thought it was odd that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul is talking about the gospel, in 1 Corinthians 15, he's teaching us about the gospel. And he says, this thing, whatever it is, is of first importance. Like you need to understand this more than anything else imaginable. And he then says that Jesus Christ came and he died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. And then there's this little phrase, and then he appeared. He appeared. He showed up. He put himself right in the middle of a place where he could literally be touched and seen and conversed with. He appeared to them. And that is gospel truth. You see, our eternity is with Jesus and he's real. We believe in him. And we believe the second person of the Trinity who existed from all eternity past is now in the form of Jesus, our Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who has defeated everything. And he paused long enough to be seen and touched. And so I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. But it's important to know that you're going to be in relationship. There will be people there. But two, it's not detached. It's not in like a form of consciousness. It's not like a dream. Heaven is real. And Jesus wants you to engage it and be hopeful for it. There are studies out there that we've become detached with the afterlife because it's just too far-fetched. This morning, Jesus, in these small movements, he wants to capture our attention that where we are going is truly real for us. Now, it's significant that he shows up to the women at the tomb, the two guys at the road to Emmaus, and to the eleven. But it's equally as important to realize what he says first. Think about that. What are the first words out of Jesus's mouth to the 11? Verse 36, peace to you. With those simple words, peace to you, three simple words, three syllables, he wanted to convey that the laws of the universe are okay. The thing that, things that were broken the things that were shred apart, the things that looked alienating and things that looked lonely, the things that looked like a lie, the things that looked like deception, those things were put together and it comes with the message of peace to you. That's what he knew the apostles needed to hear. Those simple words, peace to you. So he came with proof, physical proof that he was real, but he comes with a message, and that message is peace. The word peace is another word for shalom. We've been singing about this word shalom. Shalom is uh, an, an ancient word that we may not know anything about. It has nothing to do with war. It has nothing to do with just the, the absence of conflict, especially militarily. It has to do with the word completeness, together. And so when you are at peace, you're not disunified. You're together. You're complete. You see, what's in their hearts, the apostles' heart is, were we doomed? 
did we follow a guy that led us down the wrong road or to a dead end? We're just sitting here, just waiting. We have no idea what to do next. And what their hearts needed and what your hearts need is this idea that Jesus brings the message of peace. Peace to you. It's very, very personal. You see, these 11 didn't act like the 11. For the last 36 hours or so, they've run, they've deserted, they've lied, they've betrayed, they've been scared, they've been hiding, they've looked anything like what they should have. And Jesus is walking in, in the middle of them with great comfort to say, it is all okay with me. Everything is right with the world. I don't know what your parenting style is, right? But um, mine is a little bit shame-based, right? So I kind of like this, right? And maybe this, right? Or just, you know, just something that's a little bit more shamed. Like, I can't believe you would do that. Or why did you do it like that? And so it's just a little bit like this. We hear none of that in Jesus' tone. He's simply reconciling his people to himself. I am coming to bring peace because I am the peacemaker. We are at peace with God. And so that means that in your dilemma this morning, these 11 were liars, betrayers, like fearful. In your dilemma, peace can come into can be inserted into your dilemma this morning. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to have all the answers. Jesus can just come into that moment and bring peace to you. That's the gospel message that we need. Now, Jesus takes a little bit of a turn in verse 37. He turns it from Easter, and now I know that we're going into Advent, so Christmas, he offers another holiday into uh, this uh, resurrection story. He starts talking about Halloween. So I'm not sure exactly what's happening here, but uh, obviously ghost stories and spirits and disembodiments and those kinds of things enter into the story here, and he's saying, I'm not a ghost. That's, that's the moral of the story starting in verse 37. Because the disciples were startled. They were just a little bit off their, their rocker a little bit and they didn't know how to define it because they were just talking among themselves and then all of a sudden Jesus appears and startles them. And so we know that from John's account that he just kind of appears. There's locked doors, there's four walls, they're talking and then all of a sudden somebody kind of taps somebody on the, on the shoulder like, hey guys, what's up? or something like that. Jesus just inserts himself in the middle of this conversation. They're startled. Who wouldn't be? The disciples thought they saw a ghost. They had heard reports, but they hadn't seen it for themselves. And so what does this have to do with our understanding of eternity? Is that we're not just disembodied spirits. Jesus says, no, I'm not a spirit. In fact, I'm flesh. I'm bone. Touch me. He offers up this instruction to touch him, to prove himself. And this is a word that doesn't mean just like touch the texture of something lightly. This means to grab or to hold or to embrace, to bring close. And so Jesus really wants to actually come close to them 
But what are they touching? It's not just him. It's the worst part of him. I want you to touch my scars, Jesus says. To know that I am not just a spirit. To know that I am real, that I am who I say I am. Who else has marks like this? And he encourages the apostles to actually come and to touch the scars of Jesus. The physical body of Jesus is there in their presence as well as the scars. And so one thing that we can understand about eternity is that maybe scars will be there too. You see, the thing that brought peace to us, the thing that brought peace to that room on that Easter Sunday were those scars. The purpose for his life was his death. The purpose of his death was his victory. And the purpose of his victory was to bring peace to people like you and me. And where would we be without his nail-scarred hands and feet? And that's what he wants his apostles to touch. It seems gruesome. It may even seem gross. But there's no faking that. Jesus is real. And Jesus is offering peace. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding comes through his scars. And so what will we be like in all eternity? Will we have bodies? Yes. Will those bodies potentially be hosting scars? Potentially. The best way that I can put it is that who we were is who we will be, but better. We don't stop being us. Jesus of Nazareth. We are who we are, but better. Something does change. Something is better. Jesus is now setting them on a different trajectory of life. With his hands and with this grasp and with this glorification, he's sending them on a task that will forever change them forever. It will change them forever. How do I know this? Well, in the rest of the New Testament, two of the guys that were there, one was named John, the other's name is Peter. They have a, a, a big chunk of the New Testament. What does John say about this moment in this room at this point? First John 1 John 1.1, he says, because we have touched with our own hands. This moment changed them forever. forever. Acts chapter 10, this is Peter. Peter saying that the one reason that I'm preaching to you is because I ate with him and I drank with him after the resurrection. This meal and this touch changed them forever. The last proof is not just that he's in relationship, not just that it's real, not that there's scars, but the fact that he says, anybody have anything to eat? What a strange request from our Savior. 
I mean, it had been a long day. He'd accomplished a lot. But there's more to that. It's because this is what he'd been doing from the very, very beginning. For 24 chapters, Jesus has either been going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. Why would it be any different here in chapter 24? He comes and he has a meal with his disciples. It's simple. It's broiled fish. It's nothing that you'd write home to anybody with, but it's there. And it's a real meal with his real friends that's becoming a family. Now, what does this meal produce? What's the other emotion other than fear or, or, or just or questioning? There's another emotion here. And this is the emotion that from start to finish just imbibes all of Luke. And it's the simple word, joy. They marveled and they had great joy. This is the primary emotion of the gospel of Luke. It started all the way in the beginning with the angel saying, it is good news of great joy that I come. That's the beginning of the story. In the middle of the story, we have this elaborate chapter, chapter 15, with a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. And at the end of all three parables, what do we find? We find joy. And at the end of this story, what this mill produces is a marvelous and wonderful joy. Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was to accomplish all that he was going to say and do. And so hopefully now you have a better picture of what your eternity will be like if you trust in Jesus. It'll be more like family. It'll be more like relationships. It'll be more like a meal. It'll be with Jesus looking to us and bringing peace among us. There will be laughter and food and goodness. We will be sharing stories. He will teach from the Old Testament. Our eyes will be open. That's what eternity will be like. Eternity will be the fact that we are all in one place at the same time with King Jesus himself. Scars included. The scriptures say it like this. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is what our eternity will look like. Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19 say it like this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, a dinner, a table, a meal, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain and cover that all that is cast of all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be on this day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our God. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice for his salvation. 
the primary emotion of eternity will be that of joy. And then Revelation, the end of our story, verse 19, or chapter 19. And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, linen, bright and pure. For fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Luke isn't saying anything different than what John is saying at the end of our story. Rejoice, for you have been invited to the table of the Lord. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the message of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. And so King Jesus, I pray for our imaginations, that our imaginations will grow because of passages like this, that you are making for yourself a people who are in relationship, that eternity is real and we will be in your presence, that you will help redefine the hardest days and the hardest seasons and the worst scars of our lives and redefine them for your purpose and your glory. And you will imbibe us with meat and food and drink, but most of all, joy, Lord. Help us to rejoice here on earth like we will in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And so at the end of all of our services, we like to come to the table of the Lord. That's what we would like to do today. So all of you who call upon the name of the Lord, all of you who seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, this table is open for you. For those who are struggling with the Lord, asking hard questions, maybe have your way to the outside. Just know that there is an invitation, an invitation to the table of the Lord. We would pray that today would be the day that you say yes. So do me a favor, go ahead and stand to your feet. Know that there are two tables in the back and two in the front. And so today the tables are open for those who rejoice in the table of the Lord.